generational economic divide, loopholes closer to closing, and good news on solar. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me, as always, is the great, the glorious, the magnificent playwright of A Fall in Love <laughs> and The Questions on at the Sydney Theatre Company and the South Australian State Theatre Company. State Theatre Company of South Australia. I always get that wrong, respectively. Uh, in 2024, check out uh, websites for details is, of course, my wife and your friend, Van Badham. How are you, Van? Well, Ben, you and I went to the theatre this week, didn't we? We did. And we saw a very funny, very moving, very moving um, but great end-of-year show called The Very Jewish Christmas Carol at the Melbourne Theatre Company, uh, written by my friend Elise Esterhurst, who is a wonderful playwright and a wonderful person. It's a really great production, and it's all the feels for the end of year. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting take on the uh, Dickens uh, Christmas Carol. So funny, moving. There's tears in the audience, a few tears from the people on this podcast. <laughs> but it was certainly worthwhile. Yes, I know that, you know, I mean, there are people out there who think Ben and I are monsters and you should really go to the theatre with us because uh, I think it's a – it's always been a place where I put my feelings, the theatre, and uh, through the, the power of relationship and marriage, Ben is putting his feelings there as well. We will never forget going to see Robert Lepage's 887, um, one of our favourite shows ever at the Melbourne Festival, um, which is about class transition. It's mm-hmm. about a kid from working class Quebecois family, Robert Lepage, who becomes a famous artist and then revisits his childhood and his neighbourhood. And Ben and I were sobbing like children at the end of it, very much related to the show, and all the Melbourne Festival audience were like, why are they crying? Why are there tears? We do not understand. So everyone should go to the theatre. It is good for you. Look, speaking of class transitions, I want to just remind people that the Australian Education Union is running a campaign to help improve the classroom experience of every child and all of our teachers, of course, by getting full funding into our schools. You can check out foreverychild.au. They're asking people to send postcards to Albo. They are going to Canberra next week. Uh, I will actually be up there on Sunday. Oh, and Ben loves Canberra. He just can't wait to go. It's his favourite place. It always has such a good time. But look, it's, Van, the campaign has been just going great guns. The They're doing a, a convergence onto Canberra. Uh, if you've been following this on social media, you'll have seen uh, the Forever Child branded cars. They've been to Uluru. Uh, they've been to some of the, you know, the big things. I think they were at a big banana and a big prawn. They've been to all sorts of locations around the country. Teachers from all over Australia are converging on Canberra for Sunday and Monday. Uh, And of course, more and more we're seeing these reports come out about uh, how working class families and working class kids are missing out. 98% of our public schools are underfunded. And that means they are missing out on the kind of experiences that allow them to access the theatre, access art, access music, uh, and also just some basic things around Well, teachers are being exploited, you know, and the vocational, we've spoken about this on the show before. Public school teachers become public school teachers because they believe in education and they have a calling. And that is the most 
pure and noble sentiment imaginable, a cohort of people who devote their lives to making, to improving the lives of children. Like that is morally absolutely great. Like that is so great. That is such a social treasure. And the idea that that is being exploited and teachers take more and more hours, Mm, unpaid, mm. stretch themselves further and further in order to meet those education gaps is ridiculous, it is disrespectful, it is counterproductive, and it will burn teachers out. We know it's burning teachers out. And, you know, as somebody who got a public school education that has taken them all over the world, a life beyond my wildest dreams, like I will be flying the flag for this one forever. And I just want to say to people, do you like children? Do you think children are good? Do you think children are equal? Do you think children all deserve the same chances in life? Well, here is something really simple you can do for children. For every child is a pretty good slogan, I must say. You can send a postcard to Albo. You can call your MP. You can send an email. You can write a letter. You can say, do you know, actually, this is fundamentally important and I, as a citizen in democracy, want to do something about it. Please, we'll put stuff in our um, in our materials yep. to give you options to do it, and it's such a simple thing that you can actually affect in the community that you live in. Ben, I love that. Yeah, and look, it's uh, particularly relevant because, of course, today is Go Home on Time Day, uh, and we'll talk a bit more about the level of exploitation that is occurring in our economy. Uh Right, right, right across many, many sectors. But there is uh, one thing I want to uh, just highlight very quickly before we get into the sort of bulk of the show today, is that we received some information from the International Transport Workers Federation and the Maritime Union of Australia. Now, a lot of people would be aware of the MUA in terms of um, actions at the docks and through uh, basically through dock workers. But, of course, they're also very heavily involved in actual shipping, and that is moving goods around the world. Now, this year alone, across more than 600 inspections, they found $14 million in stolen wages uh, that were able to be recovered on behalf of vulnerable and exploited uh, seafarers. Like this is a huge, huge problem uh, where people are being exploited, often uh, often foreign workers on ships that are coming into Australia. Of course, the Albanese government has pledged to try and bring uh, more Australian ships and more Australian flagships, that means with Australian crews, into the Australian fleet. Uh, But, you know, this is a huge amount of money uh, that's essentially being stolen from workers. 70% of ships carrying imports and exports fail to meet minimum international standards for wage payment. Now, that's in Australian waters. That's not, you know, happening in the South China Sea. So this is a... This is an issue that is happening right here in Australia. It does impact people. And when we start to talk about these bigger systemic issues, these are these are the on-the-ground micro examples in teaching, in shipping, two more diverse sectors I can't imagine than cheap than teaching and shipping. Yeah. <laughs> sheeping and teaching, yes. <laughs> but then what we can see is that I love sheeping. Right across the economy, this form of exploitation is happening, Van. Which is fundamentally why we need to pass the closing the loopholes bill. You know, we've seen some excellent progress really just in the last 24, 48 hours, where even 
even the Australian Hotels Association, even some of the gig platforms in transportation, and now uh, the Australian Resources and Energy Employer Association have said that closing loopholes should probably pass, that it's time to end these exploitations, uh, that it's, you know, billions of dollars, as we've talked about before, right, over the course of a decade that's being ripped out of the pockets of working people. And even now you've got Steve Knott who, I mean, during my time at the ACTU, I can tell you Steve Knott has always been a warrior for the bosses. Where is he from? He is from the Australian Resources and Energy Employers Association. I seem to recall you having internet arguments with him. Did you have internet arguments with him? Steve Knott and I have had some interesting internet discussions. There's no question about that. For those of you who don't follow Ben on Twitter, you probably should. <laughs> but, uh, look, it's it's a it's an interesting time where you've got people like Steve not going. Yeah, I agree with Ben Davison. Literally, <laughs> I never thought that would happen. Not in my wildest dreams, Ben. And look, Ben, you know, as I said, today's go home on time day and the Centre for Future Work, the uh, Australian Centre for Future Work, releases research every year on this day and today's research shows that there's $131 billion in unpaid overtime in the Australian economy. Like there are so many loopholes for big businesses to exploit, whether it's unpaid overtime, whether it's forced casualization, whether it's sham contracting arrangements, whether it's dodgy labor hire arrangements, which obviously BHP and Qantas are up to their necks in. And, you know, Tony Burke was asked about this uh, today and he said, quite frankly, that he just did not expect uh, at any point that uh, BHP and Qantas would get on board, given that, you know, Qantas has, what, 38 different subsidiary companies that it's set up in order to avoid employing people directly. BHP owns its own labour hire company. I mean, they have... Sham labour hire. They really have. It is sham labour hire. You know, they start these subsidiary companies because they also don't want to pay a cut to a labour hire company. Like, this is how ridiculous... The, the level of exploitation has become. And there's a broader context to this about rebalancing the economy, not just in terms of power but in terms of money and in terms of who gets to access what. And the, the closing the loopholes bill is so important because these are billions of dollars mm. being milked from people and if billions are being taken away from working people, they're going somewhere else. And we currently live in a world where it's becoming increasingly clear that letting billionaires have more billions is actually really dangerous. And we're seeing the rise of like the mega billionaire, somebody, anybody who has been on the website that was formerly known as Twitter, which is mm. now known as X or other things that I don't think <laughs> I can say on an Apple podcast is a family show. Like Elon Musk's behaviour has become a real lightning rod for people to understand just what the redirection of that capital is meaning. So Elon Musk is associated with exploitative labour practices. Elon Musk, mm. his companies have an appalling safety record. He is a, a union-busting boss. There are all you can read about this. Yeah. This is not, you know, speaking out of school. This is all a matter of there are considerable uh, legal claims against his businesses mm. for their treatment of workers. And where have all those billions gone? They've gone to some delusional frat boy who now owns uh, 
internet defense systems and is a defense subcontractor for the U.S. government, uh, you know, flying rockets into space, plans to colonize Mars, builds extremely ugly trucks, but also owns a media company, which is currently platforming Nazis. Like, that is happening. So much so, in fact, that many of the major advertisers who were advertising there, like mainstream companies on the NASDAQ uh, and the Dow Jones, have pulled their ads entirely. Uh, as I understand it, uh, Apple is one, for example. Yeah, Apple has pulled its advertising. Apple made, you know, a typical canny capitalist move when Elon Musk took over and heaps of advertisers went, yeah, I'm not staying. Mm. Apple increased its advertising spend yep. on Twitter in order to buy more advertising in yard space, essentially, at a cheaper rate, you know, in a technology-appropriate market. And Apple's gone, yeah, no, we actually don't want our ads appearing next to content by white supremacists. That's not really hip to our brand. And this was an issue raised by Media Matters for America, which is a progressive media monitoring organisation in the United States. Anyone who read my book QAnon and on would see how much I relied on their research for my work. And Elon Musk is now threatening to bury his enemies in a graveyard like there has been a progression of tweets that, frankly, if you saw them from somebody you'd worked with, you'd ask for an EAP, are now, you know, one of the richest men in the world promulgating this kind of nonsense and he's going to sue Media Matters for America. And I have personally volunteered to be a witness on their behalf because everybody on that website has seen Nazi content thanks to Elon. But this is the point. Like while these loopholes exist, where is the money going and who is it going to and what are the restraints on their behaviour? Restoring balance to the workplace, ensuring that workers are paid properly, that they enjoy safe conditions at work, that they have the opportunity of building their prosperity in the workplace, that governments can recoup taxation and build shared infrastructure. Mm-hmm. That These are actual constraints on the kind of dangerous, disastrous billionaire behaviour that we are seeing from Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and all of these other guys who have more money than they literally know what to do with. Well, it's obviously, Van, not just in America. You know, the Minerals Council here in Australia is spending $24 million trying to, quote-unquote, kill off uh, the closing the loopholes bill. Um, Tony Burke made the point today uh, that, you know, they're going to run these ads uh, and he said, and I quote, but as people watch the millions and millions of dollars of ads over summer, I think a lot of Australians will be saying, why are you spending the money on ads rather than just paying your workers? And and this is the point, right? They they don't want to pay their workers, whether it's Elon Musk or, the, or BHP or Qantas or Peter Thiel, they don't want to pay the workers. They'd rather spend the money on uh, ads and attacking governments because for them, $24 million is a small investment. Chump change. To be able to recoup billions or recoup or take billions out of the pockets of working people. And this is why we always say it's so important to join your union. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W as in week on Wednesday. You can join while you're listening to this podcast. You can join anytime, day or night. And the reason why it's important to join is because unions are actually standing up against this inequality. They're standing up to close these loopholes. They're standing up against the likes of Elon Musk and Peter Thiel to say this is unacceptable. You can't just take $9 billion out of the pockets of vulnerable workers. You can't rip off the people who 
the global supply chain relies on to get things shipped from one part of the world to another. You can't rip off our teachers who are who are helping our children meet their full potential. You can't rip off and attack retail workers. The SDA, in conjunction with some of the better retailers, I have to say, has launched a campaign uh, this week in the lead up to Christmas because so many people are now under so much financial pressure that they're assaulting retail workers. Oh, my God. You know, these are... These are horrendous things. Yeah, don't do that. You know? <laughs> like, don't assault retail workers. We can't have a scenario where less than 10% of NDIS providers are registered and actually complying with transparency, regulation, and proper employment practices. Less than 10%. Less than 10%. As I understand it, it's somewhere near 7% of uh, NDIS providers are registered. You know, there are workers in that space who are exploited on platforms like Mabel every single day, and it has to come to an end. These loopholes have to close. You know, we can't have this situation not only where workers are being ripped off, but you see taxpayers being ripped off as well. You see people who rely on services being ripped off. You see people in stores being witness to violence. This is not okay. We have to redress the balance. Unions are a key part in making that happen. Joining your union, even if you say to yourself, you know, like I can I can honestly say that my union membership is not about improving my personal wages and conditions. It's not. My union membership is about my solidarity with other workers in services uh, more broadly, in the private sector. Benjamin is a proud member of the ASU. I am a proud member of the ASU because my membership helps those workers who need those resources, and I stand in solidarity with them. You know, I'm very fortunate in my career and where it's gone, but there are lots of workers who do have terrible bosses. You know, if you're a worker and you go, you know, I've got a good boss, I've got a good working environment, don't think that means you shouldn't join the union. You absolutely should because you want to expand that enfranchisement. You want to expand that positive workplace culture and environment to more workers and more workplaces. And also, you know, it could happen to you. I mean, I'm at a point in my my career is going really well now, but I'm in an extremely unstable industry. Yeah. And I'm literally one project away from everything going wrong. And, you know, it is awesome that I have a column at The Guardian. I am thrilled that I have been able to maintain that column for 10 years. That makes me incredibly happy. And what an incredible privilege it has been to have that column. But it's not the only work I do. And in order to make a living and stay stable mm. and the rest of it, I have had to go to the union in the past few years to get paid for gigs. Like, yeah. you know, and these piecemeal different kinds of work that I have to do to put together something that that looks like a full-time career when there are periods of unemployment and uncertainty and, and exploitation becomes an issue. And as more and more professions are casualised in that way. Like journalism used to be an unbelievably stable job. You know, you mm. went in as a um, cadet, yeah. you know, you got apprenticed, you received on the job training, you were in there, you know, you had, like, I'm so old, I remember when journalists got paid a dollar a word, oh, my God, you know, and we ask people who work in the media, editors do about eight times as much work as they did 15 years ago. Yeah. 
And, you know, we've seen casual contracts, mass casualization, digital disruption, driven by the likes of Elon Musk and the tech bros, mm. you know, go fast and smash things, you know, better to apologise later than prevent yourself from doing it now. And it's had a huge impact on so many industries. AI is another, you know, there are some people, like I'm actually quite positive about AI because yeah. I've read its work and my writing's a lot better. But, you know, that could change in the future. I'd say it's unlikely. I've got that special something computer. Um, But certainly there is going to be disruption in various fields and how we manage that has does have to do with how we organise. Ben and I always use the example of nursing. Like mm. nursing is a, a brilliantly a highly unionised profession. Yeah. And it meant that when a lot of technological innovation came in to disrupt healthcare and a lot of traditional uh, jobs at work, like jobs within jobs, were being displaced by technology, the ANMF, the Australian Nursing and Midwives Federation, organised and went, we will work with the technology we will enhance our productivity. If you build training into our jobs, you will be amazed at what we can do. And, of course, Australia has one of the best healthcare systems in the world because we have highly trained nurses who are employed, who have a strong union who looks after them and who were able not to be scrap heaped and displaced by technology but to enhance the care they could provide with it. And that opportunity is for all professions looking at digitisation and automation if we are organised and if we can articulate our demands of what a more prosperous future for everybody looks like. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Van, and it is about standing together. And, you know, we're seeing this uh, increasingly in, say, the mining sector where workers who are engaged directly, who are employed full-time, if you like, are saying it's not okay that someone else is paid less to do the same work. Uh, you know, that that does undermine the security of their job. People are waking up to this, realising this. I think we've seen it in higher education where for a long time maybe people didn't quite, um, the threat wasn't clear to everyone. I think now the threat is abundantly clear to everybody that if you allow the exploitation of a cadre of workers in your sector, then that's going to undermine the security of workers who are already there. And increasingly now, we start to see how that's playing out across generations, where you've got workers who perhaps have been in long-term full-time employment arrangements starting to realise that workers coming through, younger workers coming through, are increasingly casualised, forced to be casual, forced to be labour hire, forced to be contract, uh, and that's undermining the system that we have. Closing the loopholes around this is absolutely vital. And it's it's not just vital from a perspective of the individual worker, but the broader macroeconomic impacts of this have become increasingly apparent as well. Like we've seen now, there's research coming out uh around inflation and all the discussion around inflation and the Reserve Bank, well, what we're seeing is a real generational divide, a real generational divide happening in our economy, which is partly driven by the economic position of young people versus the economic position of older people. And that's not the kind of Australia we want. If you're like us, you want an Australia that has opportunity for all people to actually own their own home, to have economic opportunity, to lead the lives they want to lead, not a situation where 
oh, because you happen to be lucky enough to be born at a certain time or in a certain place or to a certain family, you get more opportunity than others. I repeat, do you like children? Because I like children. I think children are good. Like as a, as a broad base, I'm sure there are some awful ones, but as a broad-based concept, I'm extremely pro-children. And how can we as Australians look at children, children in the school system, and go, oh, by the way, we're building an economy where only those of you who are already from prosperous families will have opportunity and the rest of you dream the dreams you want, son, because none of them are going to come true. Like that's dystopian. Yeah, it is. You know, the Australia that I grew up in was an Australia that, had you know that the William the Whitlam reforms had been so inspirational that Fraser couldn't dismantle them, and then we had Hawke and Keating, and Hawke and Keating put a vision of the Australian future before everyone that said we can all have prosperity. That this is the potential of this country. You know that the that the class systems that we left behind in the old countries, if we came from migrant families, that we could start anew and we could have that opportunity that society had denied us and that was true for my family and that's true for all migrant families and we should make an Australia where that is true for First Nations families as well, that everybody gets their chance to prosper. You know, as Ben and I always say to people, socialism does not limit how high you can climb, it limits how far you can fall. And the opportunity for every generation is to build a stronger and stronger trampoline for everybody who comes after us. And we have to be really clear on this point too, Van. At the moment, when people are feeling under pressure, there is a desire to latch on to quick fixes and to point the finger of blame. And I've seen some of the stuff from the um, Malcolm Roberts, uh, some of these people online who are trying to suggest that somehow or another, uh, you know, the housing crisis is all the fault of of people coming to Australia uh, as first-generation people. We saw, obviously, and we talked about Peter Dutton's disgraceful attempts to demonise uh, at least 47 genuine, uh, genuinely stateless asylum seekers uh, who were released uh, by order of the High Court. Post-truth, Pete. Yeah, we've seen a lot of this start to bubble up. And when things are feeling tight and the economic pressure is on, that's where these sorts of things become I guess, more front and centre. They become uh, easier to grasp onto. And it's because, let's be really frank, people like the Minerals Council don't want the finger pointed at them. You know, the banks are making billions. Sally McManus from the ACTU said in the in the last week that the, uh, <laughs> that the big banks, I think it was the big banks, was it the big banks or the mining companies? It was the mining companies made so much money. Why not both? Yeah, literally made so much money that they could afford to give every single worker, not just their own workers, but every single worker in Australia, a 6% pay rise and still be profitable. You know, that's the source of economic stress in our economy is that there is this divide between corporate Australia and the rest of us. And increasingly that divide is being reinforced in a generational way as well. You know, I think it was uh, Channel 9 who who put out some information, might have been just today. It was today. That said you had to have $300,000. Of income yearly. To buy a house. Like that is huge. 
when you think that the average wage is around 90 and the median wage is even less, closer to 70 than it is to 90, like that is a massive amount of money to be raking in. And of course, at the same time, we know that young people are increasingly being underpaid, right? So young people, and this is from the uh, Centre for Future Work and the Australian Institute, young people do the most unpaid overtime per week, 7.4 hours per week if you're between 18 and 29. That's basically a whole day, a whole extra day every week. So they're doing more unpaid overtime. They're getting paid less. They need more in order to buy a home. Like these are systemic problems. In and they the- have larger educational debt. They have larger educational debt. More healthcare expenses, although the recent Medicare reforms are going to absolutely help that. You know, and that's why this targeted support stuff is so important. Medicare reforms, childcare reforms, uh, you know, having more social and affordable housing, uh, increasing supply, uh, giving more uh, access to TAFE and training to get people into those much-needed sectors, uh, providing support to fully fund our public education system. These are all absolutely vital things that we have to keep supporting. Uh, But, you know, we can't continue to have a situation where corporations do very, very well, and if you happen to be from a certain postcode and of a certain generation, well, you can increase your spending by 10%, but if you're under the age of 65 or under the age of sort of 50, then you're cutting back. So Ben is making the point that retirees are spending up big. Yeah. Yeah, they've got the discretionary income. And and part of it is this double whammy that the RBA has hit people with. You know, we've talked about the RBA before. This the Royal Bank of Reserve Bank. The Reserve Royal Bank. Bank. Sorry. Royal just came in there because of the behaviour, unaccountable, self-appointed, contemptuous of the poor. But the, the Reserve Bank's double whammy on people is absolutely devastating. Like, I don't... I, I know individually people were feeling it. They'll be feeling it through mortgages. They'll be feeling it through rent increases. They'll be feeling it through price increases in supermarkets. And again, the price gouging inquiry, the ACTU has done some great work in this space. But to be really, really clear about this, not only has it impacted everybody who owes money to a bank or any financial institution or anybody who has to spend money on necessities, it has also increased the value of savings. So if you are one of those Australians who is around 60, who has had 30 years of superannuation, uh, not superannuation for your entire working life, but 30 years is a good time, good length of time, you're now getting more return on cash than you have been pretty much for any time in the last 20 years. So we are seeing big increases. People in their 70s and over 75, spending six, 10, 10, 6 to 10% more than they would normally. And there's a beautiful uh, graph, and I'll share it on some of our socials when we post this. This is from ComBank, right? This is from the Commonwealth Bank, showing that um, entertainment and travel spending has shifted with this demographic, right? So Reserve Bank puts up interest rates, you get more money on your savings, but if you owe money, it costs you more. So if you're under the age of 
55, you're basically paying more. If you're over the age of 55, you're getting more. What does that mean? Well, cruise line spending has gone up 55%. Oh, God. Online travel bookings are up 34%. Cinemas are up 31%. Events are up 9 Tourist attractions are up 7 um, Aquariums, zoos, museums, and galleries, all things that are traditionally uh, sort of family-based uh, entertainment, down 6%. Indoor recreation, down 13%. And bowling alleys uh, are down 17% as well. These are all things that are traditionally done by younger families, uh, younger people, maybe occasionally someone in their 40s uh, who might be into bowling, I guess. But it shows, it's a snapshot, right? It's a microcosm of how the shifts in economic policy at a macro level impact at a micro level. And we can't afford as a nation to end up with this this very two-speed economy. There was a lot of talk some time ago about two-speed economy being the mining sector and then everything else. Well, we can't have a two-speed economy where it's big corporations and retirees who have all the money and the rest of Australia is trapped in low-paid service economy jobs that are being exploited and loopholes are allowed to run rampant to prop up those corporations uh, and, quite frankly, they're getting punished by the RBA through interest rates. I want to be very clear. When Ben and I talk about this generational divide, we're well aware, perhaps better than most, that there is a cohort of older people who are doing really badly. Oh, yeah. overwhelmingly, they are women, and they are women who had care arrangements that they needed to meet, which meant that they were in um, insecure, unstable work that was known as flexible work. Uh, They're women who may have left partnerships for various reasons, often because of abuse or or family violence. You know, they're women who made sacrifices for their children who are now in such a cohort that they don't have the superannuation of men of their age group as well. They were consistently underpaid over the course of their careers. You know, when I was at university in the early 1990s, there was a National Union of Students poster that reminded everybody that one in four women are still paying off their hex at the age of 65. And I am now 48 and I can see that I probably will be still paying off my hex at the age of 65 because I'm certainly still paying it off now. And these structural inequalities within the economy mean that you have some people who are doing just unbelievably well, yeah. like literally a golden age for, for a certain cohort. But for anyone who experienced a structuralised disadvantage, they are in real trouble. And we know that for several years in Australia, the fastest growing community of homeless people in Australia are older women, yeah. women who are left with nothing after a lifetime of work or caring responsibilities. And it is it is really, really chilling what that means. And particularly for older women who are subject to family violence, who are trying to get out of those situations. I mean, this is really why any obstruction around social housing is a massive social problem. And we've absolutely got to support government initiatives to get as much housing built as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And Van, you're totally right to be clear about this point because it it isn't everybody over the age of 55 or everybody over the age of 65 who's doing very, very well. And in fact, there is a huge 
gender lens on this. There is a huge postcode lens on this. And if you just look at where the greatest uh, pressures are on people experiencing housing pressure, experiencing economic pressure, um, it's when you look at the maps of Sydney and Melbourne on on those sorts of metrics, it's very, very clear that they are predominantly households that are uh, lower income, they are often single income, they are often older women, uh, and they are in the outer suburbs. You know, you've got people who are who are doing it really, really tough who may still be older. Um, I think it's fundamental that we get this right. We have to absolutely make some significant policy adjustments. You know, there's a lot of talk now about the stage three tax cuts, which are due to come in in July. It seems bizarre to me that these will go that these could go ahead in the way that they're currently structured. I think that it just doesn't make any sense to give the wealthiest people in the country another big leg up. Uh, there is already significant advantages for people who have large sums of money who are older in the way that they often don't have to pay tax at all if they've structured their arrangements uh, properly. Same with big corporations, by the way. Like There are loopholes throughout not just the industrial relations and workplace system, but through the tax system. You know, These things have to be rebalanced. And access to housing is a big one. Getting the tax system right. You know, Morrison drove us away. He was a taxation vandal. Yeah, he drove us away from a progressive system to a regressive system, and that's not okay. You know, we can't have a system where increasingly the burden of inflation and interest rates uh, and exploitation falls on the people who have the least, whether it's because they're women, whether it's because they're younger, whether it's because they're in low-income Jobs and roles, and it's a recipe for long-term social chaos and societal decline. Yeah, as well. Like, sorry, but having been to parts of the United States that are, like, I spent some time in Gary, Indiana, which is where the Jacksons are from. Suddenly, a lot about the Jacksons made a lot of sense. It was the first place where I actually saw real-life homeless people standing around a burning garbage bin to stay warm. And I just thought, and this is the richest country on the earth. And, you know, there are towns and communities like that throughout the United States where years and years of, of capital flight to the richest end of town, essentially, yeah. um, regressive taxation, you know, like why am I paying for public services that I, I don't use kind of mentality, individualist economics have just destroyed communities. And the notion of the richest country on earth means nothing yeah. because it's a prosperity that isn't shared. You know, it's like I had some really chilling experiences there. And then you would go to a different community in America and you'd have no idea the poor people even existed. And what that means is that you're you're actually structuralising an exclusion of ability. Like if you trap people in a class system, every history book on earth bears this out. If you trap people in a class system where they cannot follow a vocational calling, you know, and achieve the means of realising their talent, Mm. you do not enhance prosperity. You just perpetuate stagnation. You know, it's the society's 
you know, I was, there's an extraordinary piece in The Australian this week, words I never usually say in that order, from Greg Sheridan, who I feel very sorry for. I feel very, very sorry for I Greg don't. Sheridan. I don't feel sorry I know for you Greg don't, Sheridan. but he's a man, he's a man who's invented a mythical past because his present is clearly very terrifying. And I shared a piece I wrote about Greg Sheridan being like perpetuating sexist garbage. Twelve years ago I wrote this piece. It was the yeah. first column I ever wrote. I reshared it yesterday. Not nothing has changed. And he has written this unbelievable column about how oh, feminism is just destroying everything. Feminism, feminism is destroying everything. And women have got to go home and have babies. Like the solution is women raising more children and and and, be, and rather than taking in more migrants. One of the things we learned in the pandemic, we didn't take in any migrants during the pandemic. And yet our problems did not go away. Correct. Like housing didn't get better because we weren't taking in migrants. Wages didn't go up because we weren't taking in migrants, like all of those problems are there. Every sociologist in the world can tell you that migration to a to a yeah. to Western country means enhanced prosperity, new markets, new enterprise. You know, like more productive. All these things. Migration is good, and. <laughs> but Greg Sheridan and he's like, oh, have more babies. Like, one, that's just not economically possible for a lot of people, Greg. Like, I realise that the concept of research is something beyond your remit as a columnist for The Australian, but at The Guardian where we prioritise it, you know, the idea that, oh, well, you can just have all these babies and who's going to look after them, Greg? Right. And if you take one of the income out of, uh, income earners out of a modern household and these aren't big households where there can be multifamilies because people can't afford that kind of housing. Like the economic illiteracy of the suggestion aside, it's this whole notion that, you know, good societies, feminist societies are more prosperous. Mm. They are more productive. They are more free. They are more equal and they are happier. Yeah. You know, when we enfranchise, when we don't put these arbitrary limitations, you know, on that restrict your capacity because of your gender or your sexuality or your ability status or your ethnicity or your religion, any of those things, when we remove those, we actually become more prosperous societies, like collectively. Mm. And the idea that you would structuralise marginalisation and poverty is a recipe for economic misery because the only thing that happens if you expand the community of poor people is that poverty starts eating into the other classes as well. More poor people means more poor working class people, means more precarious and then poor middle class people. And this is the thing. We have to remember that while... There are hugely profitable corporations. While there are some people doing very, very well, there will be a desire on their part to protect that. And they will invest in protecting that. And they will invest in sowing the seeds of disputation and division among working people. Whether you're in a job, whether you've retired from the workforce, whether you're looking for work, and they will sow those seeds of disputation and division because it helps them maintain their position, their power, their backers, their economic position. The Minerals Council of Australia can afford to give every worker, the members of the Minerals Council of Australia can give every worker in this country a 6% pay rise. And they are fighting against closing the loopholes that would mean just paying people the minimum required. They have fought against the responsibility they have 
to provide safe working conditions. They have fought against providing uh, working workplaces that are free from sexual harassment uh, and assault. They fought domestic violence, leave. These are, (laughs) they will fight tooth and nail every step of the way. And we've got to recognise that for all of their talk about well, it's the it's the taxation and the exports and the we create jobs and we create the prosperity of the country. It's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. You take the things that we make, that the people make, that the workers make, or that that are owned collectively by us as a commonwealth or a state, and you sell them to other people. And you take a huge amount of profit for that. In fact, Australian companies take more profit from things like liquid natural gas than than companies in Qatar get to take. You know, the Qatari government gets more in taxation revenue from LNG than the Australian government does. This idea that somehow or another more rich people means a richer nation is just not true. And this idea that, oh, well, GDP's up, therefore we're all much richer, that's not true. There is no trickle down. That's exactly right. There is no trickle down. And it is why we have to fight for closing the loopholes. It's why we have to fight for full funding of schools. It's why we have to fight for more Australian flagged ships. It's why we have to support workers at B&D Doors, the AMWU workers who are on strike uh, for the rest of this week and have been taking industrial action for weeks because they they are standing up for what is right. We talked about... uh, Enesis, which is an ETU site, they've been on taking industrial action for I think more than thirteen weeks. This is these are companies are by law required to maximise profit, unless there is working people standing together across age groups, across industries to determine the conditions of that profit. And we have that opportunity. And I've got to say, like, full credit to Tony Burke as Minister for IR and the idea that this policy is being pursued with such energy and the fact that Tony Burke has been part of discussions that have brought employer associations on board with closing the loopholes is extraordinary. Yeah. This does not happen under Liberal governments. No. It does not happen. It certainly would not happen in any uh, government run by the National Party, God help us, or in my worst nightmares, One Nation. And let's be very, very honest as well. This stuff doesn't happen with teals and it certainly doesn't happen with greens. No. Right? This is why we have an Australian Labor Party. As I try to remind people, the dead giveaway is in the name. That's right. And actually pursuing material outcomes, that is physical things you can touch, maybe eat or have over your head at night time, is the point of the policy program. And we need to be really... We need to understand that that is not an easy process. It's not a quick process. It's really easy to dismantle things. It's really easy to abolish things. And a decade of having a a coalition government that was abolishing workers' rights, that was abolishing investments in in housing, uh, that was abolishing regulation that protected workers, you know, that's easy to do. You You can 
get rid of something with almost the stroke of a pen. And it's also really easy to uh, to absolutely undermine. I was going to use another word I can't use on Apple, yeah. but it reminds with it rhymes with hit and can. Um, it's really easy to just say, oh, well, you know, you're not going hard enough, you're not going fast enough, you're not going far enough, and yet Labor is up against the richest people in the economy. Yeah. The most powerful capital interests in a capitalist society where resources are allocated on the basis of who's got the most money to buy them. Like this is a hell of a fight and going, oh, well, you know, it's not good enough, it's not fast enough and is. Like, and, and I mean, and that's easy. That's also easy. And at times of my life, been to my shame, I've been that person mm. and I regret being that person. Well, and this is my point, right? It's hard work. It takes a long time. It, it's never going to be as fast as we want it to be. It's just never going to be as fast as we want it to be. I get frustrated too. I, I wish we could wave a magic wand and replace all of the rundown social housing with brand new housing. We can't do that. It takes time. Things have to be demolished and rebuilt. You've got to have builders. You've got to have builders. Yeah, builders are really important in this process of building and, houses, by the way. And can I just say this? Increasingly, increasingly over the last 30 years, we've had a situation where Conservative governments have trashed things. Labor governments have tried to build. And often the process of building means that conservative governments then get to enjoy the bounty of that. John Howard is a classic example where he enjoyed the bounty of a lot of hard work from the Hawke-Keating era and didn't really do that much. His biggest reforms were gun reforms and the GST. That was really it. Everything else was cruising on the work that Hawke and Keating did. He didn't tackle any of the systemic problems in our economy. Then Labor had to come in and go, hang on, what about climate change? What about gender equality? What are we doing in some of these fields? And of course, it's really hard. It's really hard to do. And all of us on the kind of left side of the political spectrum want that to happen immediately, but it just doesn't work that way. You've got to work through not just the bureaucracy, you've got to work against these incredibly powerful vested interests, incredibly wealthy vested interests, who will spend millions, spend millions to fight against it. You've got to write good legislation because if it's not written properly, you're going to end up in court. You're going to lose in court. We saw the Morrison government with its slapdash, political, politically advantageous, but inhumane legislation get thrown out in the High Court. Now Labor has to fix that as well. And I know people are critical of that. I understand why people are critical, but you've got to also understand that it takes a long time to get this stuff right. We've got a diminished public service. 3,000 more services Australia employees are being recruited. Again, the announcement happens. People go, oh, great. Well, why hasn't it already happened? Because hiring 3,000 people is a difficult process. 3,000 people is more than the population of the town in which we live. Oh, I just find it hilarious. Every man, woman, a child. Because, I mean, everybody wants to pick a fight with me politically, as you know, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, all the time. They never pick a fight with Ben. I'm sure it's got absolutely nothing to do with his very nice teeth, his six-foot-one height, and his gender. That couldn't possibly be it, could it? But everybody wants to do, oh, yeah, well, you know, like, Labor are terrible and they're just awful and just like, and I'm always like, and what are you doing? What are your material outcomes? What's your participation in the policy process? 
Are you actually talking about these ideas to your community? You know, like are you going down to your railway station and handing out and having political conversations with people? Are you, in fact, a member of a trade union? It is very amazing how many people who want to pick a fight with me about the Labor Party are not even members of trade unions where they could represent themselves collectively as workers in the interest of solidarity with all other workers everywhere in the world. That's very interesting. But it's also like this is a democracy and you get as much as you are willing to put in. Yeah, and look, Van, we need to sort of wrap up and move on to the good news, but let me just finish this part of the podcast by saying that it's one of the things that I actually really respect about the about the AU. You can hear Germanicus is absolutely clarion call to the workers of the world from our dog. Um, but it is one of the things that I genuinely think is great about the Forever Child campaign is that it's not saying, hey, wave a magic wand and fix this today. It's saying that there needs to be a new agreement with the states. It is nuanced. It is detailed. At a high level, we can say, yes, it's about getting every school to full funding, but they've done the work. They've done the research. They've got a really good uh, uh, publication that shows how that money will be spent the timeline in which the funding can be rolled out, they're doing that work. And, you know, more more people need to understand that's what it takes to make real change happen. You know, I had therapy this morning. I'm not backwards and coming forward about the fact that I see a psychotherapist. I mean, who would blame me? Um, But in therapy this morning, my therapist said something, and if you're listening to this show, hello, it had quite a profound effect on me, and it was their conclusion that the modern subversive embraces complexity, that the most maverick act in this political moment of social media supercharged polarisation is to recognise that things are hard and difficult and multifaceted and require reconciling sometimes completely contradictory points of view. And I just want to say how grateful I was for such a good encapsulation of the challenge, I think, in front of us, especially those of us who identify as progressives or small L liberals or, in our case, specifically democratic socialists who are trying to build an equitable society, that it is subversive, maverick and quite cool to acknowledge that things are actually kind of tricky. Absolutely. Now, speaking of things that are cool, Van, the good news today is that Portugal has run on 100% uh, renewable electricity, uh, dropping electric bills in Portugal to nearly zero for six days in a row. This is a nation of 10 million people who have been able to, just through sun and wind and wave energy, uh, get their power bills down to zero. And in fact, they may well be able to continue to keep them down uh, for for an extra five days and export some of that renewable energy to Spain. This is extraordinary. Like, this is such good news. It can be done. It can be done. And if you are backing the renewables revolution, like, get get articulate about it, get active about it, get loud about it, you know, like, encourage renewable infrastructure in your local community because we can build it. Portugal shows it not only can be done, but it's really cheap to do. That's absolutely fantastic, you know, and given the fact that there have been some really interesting comments 
lately some analysis has come out about the way that the anti-vax communities are now, surprise, surprise, being mobilised by shadowy interests on yeah. the internet against renewables and against the infrastructure of climate mitigation. So it is more important than ever that to be visible and active members of our community going, actually, renewables are fantastic. And we've seen this with uh, offshore wind. Uh, there's been attacks against that. And uh, it's nonsense. Like, it, offshore wind is not killing whales. You yeah. know, I think whales are used to wind. I think whales and the wind have both been around for quite some time. Whenever anybody wants to attack renewables in front of me, I'm always like, ever hung out your washing on the washing line? What <laughs> happened? Did you suddenly lose your libido? Did you develop a cold sore? Because that's like wind and sun and entirely renewable look, process. If Portugal can do it, and look, they've been they've been in this space actually for quite some time, uh, building turbines since the 1990s, uh, hydroelectric dams uh, in 1974. You know, they've been doing it, doing it. And it shows it can take a long, like we were saying before, it can take a long time, but you got to keep going. You got to keep pushing ahead. And if you push ahead, you will get there. Momentum. It's all about keeping going. Speaking of keeping going, Van, this podcast has been going for more than three years, which just blows my mind. This podcast is half the age of Germanicus. Is this like our equivalent of date night? <laughs> it just about is. And it is is always going to be free to download, always free to listen to. But we do try and expand the audience. We do exist up against some massive corporate interests uh, when you think about the Murdochs, you think about Seven West Media, uh, and some very right-wing interests when you think about people like Steve Bannon. The most evil person on the planet doing everything he can to build fascism. And they are out there trying to get into the ears of people we're trying to get into the ears of people like you who have enjoyed this podcast. You can like it, you can share it, you can review it, uh, talk about the issues with your friends. But of course, we do take out ads. We don't advertise on X or Twitter, whichever you want to call it. Uh, we do, however, I'm advertise. not giving that guy nothing. We do, however, advertise on other platforms. And every dollar that people contribute, whether they contribute once, whether they pay a buck a week, whether one of our extend the rate who chip in $10 a month or one of our cadre who chip in 20 every single dollar goes back into building the audience for this podcast. And as a way of congratulating and thanking those who are our cadre and who are our Extend the Reach supporters, Van, you read out their names because they deserve some recognition for their contribution and what they're doing. Our cadre, Sue Slesinger, Shamila Lacal, Ms. Deanne Weir, Joe Lockery, Steph Karina Bali, at Jancy Campbell, Leona Gibbon, Shane Waspel, Jessica Davy, 26, Andy Stavard, Ken Lee, Jason Paris, Mega Ichisaurus, Matt Trezise, Anne Coleman, at Ross Kenner, 888, Bromwin Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gal Ferguson, Rebecca Fang, Longman, Colin Kelly, Ali Vans, Mary M, Love Your Work, Yeet, Yeti, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille Akibra-Bura, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aiken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Jake Carney, Bronwyn, Punchon Fetter, and Jenny Forster Seven, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3, McCabe, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren Nash and Banjo, Naranga Man, John Sharp and Peter Bartle, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White, Blue, Lou. Extend the Reach supporters, Kim Delahaye, Murray Bardwell, Janet McCallum and Jeremy Moe, Rosie Elliott, Lara, 
Robert Not Phil 1, Michael Wales, Sanj Kelly, Darina, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tridragon, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Anna Urine, Melanie Denning, Jodie A, Penelope Judge, Spirit of Anger and Hope, S. Wood, Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graverse, Someone, Veda W, Nadina Hannum, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, Ad Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian and Andrew Iverspillet, Pedro C, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Buncombe Basher, Caddy Ward, Other Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, at Non Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Mung, Bulgoya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, Adrian Valente, Mazritza at Curridale 68, Frank Nahouse, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Bate. You're all awesome. So, so grateful from our end. It really makes the world a difference being able to reach more and more people. Uh, Just to expand the conversation because we learn stuff from you guys as well. Like all the people who send us news stories and good news stories and the unions who make sure that we're in the loop, like we're so grateful. Yeah, absolutely. Do keep sending through your ideas for stories. We do try and incorporate many of them as and when we can. And Ben does love answering a question when he does the weekend wrap on Sundays. I do the best I can. Uh, until Sunday, look, we probably will take a break next Wednesday because uh, it is uh, our anniversary and your birthday, Van. It is. Uh, and a special shout out to Let Kim- me tell you, that was the best 48 hours of my life. A special shout out to Kim Delahaye, who is one of our Extend the Reach supporters and also my other mum, <laughs> whose birthday it is today. Uh, until Sunday, when I hope to be able to give you a weekend wrap from Canberra. It'll come out late, but you'll hopefully get one. Until then, love you, Vanny. Love you too. Bye. Bye.